Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, you are love, you are strong, you are mighty, you are bigger than any amount of darkness, any amount of difficulty, any struggle, suffering, or sin that we may be dealing with. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that we would come to you with openness and receptivity to your power and your Holy Spirit working and desiring to work in each of our lives. We pray, God, that anything pulling us away from this time, any distractions, any worries or anxieties, that you remove those from our hearts and our minds in this moment so we will be freely able to encounter you through the words that we hear proclaimed and through our discussion with one another. And we pray especially, Lord, that you bless us each in the ways we most need it, that you speak words of profound truth, conviction, comfort, guidance, discernment to each one of us. Whatever it is that we need, to hear most tonight, Lord, help us to be ready, open, and willing to receive it and take it to heart. Bless this time that we have together as we encounter you in your word, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome again. We are in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And we are going to read the entire chapter. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Lent. This Sunday of Lent is also known as Laetare Sunday, which means rejoice. It comes from the antiphon for the beginning of Mass because we are halfway through Lent, and so we're getting ready to rejoice at Easter. And so uh, the the priests that are celebrating Mass may wear rose-colored vestments. You may see them wearing rose-colored vestments, one of only two days a year that they wear those. Sometimes they elect to just continue wearing purple, but that is why, because we have this um, special Sunday of rejoicing because we are getting over the hurdle of the halfway mark of Lent and working our way toward Easter. So uh, this gospel, another long gospel, like last week's Gospel of the Woman at the Well, because this Sunday is also the second scrutiny for those people who are unbaptized, who are seeking to enter the Catholic faith and to uh, receive the sacraments. And so these particular gospel readings are accompanied by powerful prayers uh, of the community on their behalf and powerful prayers from the priest of exorcism over them to prepare them to receive the sacraments. And so each of these long gospels have profound spiritual symbolism for those particularly journeying to convert to the Catholic faith. And so that's why we are reading this uh, this evening and why we're here proclaimed on Sunday. So we're going to read this twice through. Yes, it is a long one. We will read it twice. First time through, I invite you to set the scene in your mind, act as though you've never heard this story before in your life. Okay, so Jesus is in Jerusalem. He is preaching during a pilgrimage feast known as the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And he is encountering, he encounters uh, the man born blind on the last day of this festival, which also happens to be the Sabbath. So we'll pick up reading this encounter beginning in John chapter 9, first time through. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. 
His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back able to see. His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is, but others said, no, he just looks like him. He said, I am. So they said to him, so how were your eyes opened? He replied, the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went there and washed and was able to see. And they said to him, to him where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the one who was once blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. So then the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and now I can see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was a div division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. They asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We do not know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him as the Messiah, he would be expelled from the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, question him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, if he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I, already to I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? They ridiculed him and said, you are that man's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we do not know where this one is from. The man answered and said to them, that is what is so amazing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is devout and does his will, he listens to him. It is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. They answered and said to him, you were born totally in sin, and you are trying to teach us? And they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, I do believe, Lord. And he worshipped him. 
Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see might see, and those who do see might become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind also, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you are saying, We see, so your sin remains. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we get a sense for what is happening in this passage, we're going to read it a second time. And this second time, I want you to pay close attention to the words as you hear them. Okay, you have this scene hopefully painted in your mind. Now I invite you to just listen for what words or phrases just jump off the page for you, resonate with you in your own life, don't have to have anything to do with this passage, but might connect to something going on in your own heart, might connect to a memory, a question, something that you've been bringing to prayer, whatever it might be. Pay attention to those things and begin to reflect on them, underline them, make note of them, and start to ask, why is this standing out? Why is this the thing that I'm noticing? What is God trying to say to me personally and directly through this passage? Uh, So pay attention to those things you notice. The second final time through, we're in John chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back able to see. His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is, but others said, no, he just looks like him. But he said, I am. So they said to him, so how are your eyes opened? He replied, the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went there and washed and was able to see. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought the one who was once blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. So then the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and now I can see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. They asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We do not know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. The parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him as the Messiah, he would be expelled from the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, question him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, if he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, 
I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? They ridiculed him and said, you are that man's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we do not know where this one is from. The man answered and said to them, that is what is so amazing. You do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is devout and does his will, he listens to him. It is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. They answered and said to him, you were born totally in sin, and you were trying to teach us, and they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, I do believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see might see, and those who do see might become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But you are saying we see, so your sin remains. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, reflect back on that passage and what stood out, and we'll take about the next 10 minutes or so to share at your tables what stood out to you and why, what questions you have about this reading. Uh, if you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what stands out to you. But for those of us here, take about the next 10 minutes. Feel free to join another table if you like. Stay where you are. We have some pretty full tables, but we have some room up in the front if you guys in the back want to come join. But anyways, uh, we'll take about the next 10 minutes and uh, discuss, and we'll bring it back to the larger group. So I'd like to do what I did last week and give you a little bit of context first, because it's a very long passage, and I think that will help. Um, that way we have time for other questions that that doesn't cover. And so uh, in this passage, in, in John 9, Jesus, as I said, he's in Jerusalem. This is actually already his third time in Jerusalem in the Gospel of John. Uh, Gospel of John is really like a highlight reel of things that are very pertinent to, to the time that John has written. And highlighting stories, signs, miracles of Jesus that are not highlighted in the other Gospels. And so much more time passes between accounts in the Gospel of John. And so this is third time in Jerusalem, and we read at the beginning of chapter 7 that it's the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And what the, this happens around fall time. It was originally considered a, a harvest festival. And what happened during the Feast of Sukkot was that uh, it was a seven-day feast. And for seven days, the Hebrew people would construct these huts, these structures outside of their homes that they would live in, and they had open roofs. And it was to commemorate the time that the Hebrew people were wandering in the desert for 40 years, and God provided for them. And they dwelled in these makeshift tents and structures out in the desert, and God was there for them. Uh, remember, at that time, the time of Moses, when they're wandering in the desert, God is following them and leading them through the desert as this pillar of fire, this massive light in the midst of the darkness of the desert. When they cry out for thirst and they grumble against Moses in Exodus 17, I believe, God gives Moses the ability to strike a rock with his staff and water flows out of the rock. Hey, all of these things are important. And then they pass through the waters of the Jordan to enter into the promised land. 
All of these things are represented in symbolism of things that happened during the Feast of Sukkot. So during the Feast of Sukkot, at Jesus' time, what would have happened is throughout those seven days, there would have been these massive menorah, candelabra-like structures in the court of the temple that were lit for all seven days, these huge fires. And Jerusalem is a city set up on a hill, and in that city, Mount Zion, where the temple is, is up on a hill inside the city. So hearken back to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, like, uh, your light must shine before others. No one puts a light before a bushel basket. You know, a city set on a hill is not to be hidden. It's to be seen for all. And so you could probably see this light shining in the darkness at all times when you were approaching Jerusalem for this festival or at any time during that week. So that's one thing that happened. These lights burned for seven days. On the second through the seventh day, Levites or priests would go to this pool of Siloam and they would take water out of it and they would bring it to the steps of the temple and they would pour it as almost a libation offering. They would keep doing that until it ran as a small river out of the temple area into the court to signify the grace and provision of God flowing out into the world and to commemorate back when Moses was able to bring water forth from the rock in the desert and keep them alive. And then they would make these, these huts, these structures that they would live in for all these seven days. Uh, this is actually a feast that's still celebrated. And I believe this happened also at the time of Jesus, that in the synagogues, they would gather every day, and they would get this fruit called an etrog, which is a citrus fruit. And they, you may have seen uh, people do this, or videos of, of Jews doing this in the celebration of Sukkot. They would then take palm branches, and they would also hold myrtle and willow, and they would kind of dance and chant around the synagogue in a circle, and they would do that once. And on the final day of Sukkot, which is called Hoshana Rabbah, the Great Salvation is what the day is called. They would march around or dance around the synagogue seven times, kind of like they danced or they trumpeted around the city of Jericho seven times on the seventh day and the walls came crumbling down. So there's rich symbolism in everything that's happening here, hearkening back to all of these ways in the Old Testament, the story of the Jews, how God was faithful and overcome insurmountable odds, brought them through darkness, brought them through the wandering in the desert, and shown them this great light of his salvation and his presence to lead them to the promised land. Okay, that's all happening around. And Jesus has just previously been preaching in the temple area, in front of these massive candelabras, and people are questioning him, and he says, where is this? In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Back in John 4 last week, he said, I am the living water. So Jesus is working, he's, he's trying to communicate to the people he's ministering to all of these ways that God provided for you and brought you through darkness and transformed you in the stories that you've learned and in your history. I am here to do that again. And I'm going to signify that so obviously that I'm going to come and do it on the very feast where you remember all of those things. And instead of you paying attention to the light that resembles God's light in the Old Testament, I'm going to say, I am the light of the world. Instead of you offering that water of libation on the temple steps, reminding you of the water from the rock of Moses, I am going to cleanse with water. Jesus offering all of this very clear symbolism to show people who he really is, that he is God. And so he's being very clear for you and for me and at the people at the time that Jesus is inviting us into an opportunity to be completely transformed. 
So that's what's going on in the background. This man, this man born blind, there's never, as they say, in the history of scripture or in rabbinical teaching, ever an account of someone who is born blind being healed. There are a couple short accounts of people who are struck blind, like Tobit, or Elisha uh, strikes people blind and then unstrikes them in the Old Testament. Those are the two accounts that I'm, I'm aware of where blindness is healed in the Old Testament, but it's very rare. Um, Elisha also being from the reading today, if you went to Mass, uh, healing Naaman the leper and telling him to go wash in the River Jordan seven times. So we have that imagery at play as well. Okay, So all of this is floating around in people's minds. Okay, um, A historical note, the Pool of Siloam, is a reservoir in Jerusalem that connects to an underground water shaft that was built at the time of King Hezekiah during all this time of people attacking Jerusalem during civil war. And it was to prevent a siege from happening in the city so they would constantly have access to clean water no matter how they were being attacked. So it itself is a re representation of God's faithfulness and provision during moments of spiritual and physical attack. Okay, so that's where they go to get this water. Lastly, Jesus sees this man born blind. We actually have, I told you last week, um, the woman at the well in the Eastern tradition, she has a name, Fotina. And in the Eastern tradition, this man has a name as well. His name is Celadonius. And uh, yeah, if you're looking for a, a future children's names, Celadonius. <laughs> and Celadonius in Greek uh, is, uh, it has the same root word as a swallow. And the interesting thing about that symbolism is that swallows signify the transformation between seasons, their migration. And in many cultures, swallows uh, hearken or are believed to carry messages from the dead or messages from the heavens about our own death or about the afterlife. And so there's this kind of death and new life imagery all being embodied in this man who it says, Jesus himself in verse 3, it's not because he sinned that he's blind. It's so that the works of God might be made visible through him. Okay? Do you see all of this coming together for a very specific purpose for Jesus to communicate to these people and by extension, all of us, that A, he knows what he's doing, he knows exactly what he's doing, and B, he is coming to transform us and make us new again, to bring us into new life. And so the man born blind, as we read this, is all of us. Because brothers and sisters, whether you realize it or not, and the Pharisees did not realize it, you and I were all born blind. Because of original sin, we were all born blind. Blinded to the people we were created to be, to what God was offering us. And so what does God, Jesus do? He recreates the scenario in Genesis chapter 2 where he made man from the dust. And he spits on the dust of the earth and makes clay. Makes clay, just like in Jeremiah 18, where it's talking about God is the potter and we are the vessels, and forms in him what is missing. You know, whenever you're, you're making a pot uh, and, and something happens to it, you have to re-throw it, you have to remake the clay, and you have to reshape it. So it's as if God is seeing this broken vessel, this pot that doesn't have all the pieces, and what does he do? He gets more clay and he throws it on the wheel, the proverbial wheel of his face, to recreate and restore in him what was meant to be whole from the beginning. And the same invitation, the same reality can happen for you and for me throughout this Lenten season. Any day of our life, if we wish, God is desiring to make you whole. He's desiring to transform you. He's desiring to bring you his light, show you that he is the light, that he is the living water that you seek. And no matter what suffering you experience, no matter how you may feel far from home or far from a spiritual home or disconnected from God, if you feel out in the wilderness living in a spiritual shack of sorts, God is using this feast as a reminder to us and to all of them that he is with us even in those moments of wandering and desolation. 
That is what Jesus is doing and communicating through this man born blind. And so this question is a question we often have. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, no one. And we often have this mistaken ideology. It's called the health and wealth of the prosperity gospel. It's very, very popular in American Protestantism, and we've absorbed some of it accidentally, that we believe that if we follow God and we do the things that a faithful person is expected to do, then everything in our life will be good and prosperous. And that is never promised in Scripture. Never. The prosperity and the abundance will come, but it's never promised that it will happen in this life, ever. It is promised that it will happen in eternal life, but it's never promised that our life on this earth will be easy as a result. In fact, Jesus almost always says the exact opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. I tell you this so you will have peace. They will hate you and persecute you because of me, but take courage, I have conquered the world. I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring division and set mother against daughter and father against son. He says these very difficult teachings sometimes to remind us that it's not all going to be sunshines and rainbows. There's going to be difficulty. But in the midst of that difficulty and in that suffering, it can serve as a sign to make God visible. And so if you and I throughout this Lenten season or any season of our life are experiencing some kind of suffering, to recognize it's an opportunity for the works of God, the presence of God to be made visible for others. And that's exactly what happens here in Celadonius's life. Hear the details here where he's just sitting here minding his business. He doesn't even ask anything. And they say, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Like, how messed up? You're sitting there begging, asking for money. And they're like, look at this terrible guy. What happened to him? And he's just like, come on. You know, I just imagine. And then no one even addresses him. The next thing he knows, he hears someone hock a on the ground and just smear across his face. And then someone says, go to the pool and wash. And if I'm there and I've been blind my whole life, I'm like, where the heck is that? Like, how do I get there? You know, and just so you imagine him just wandering around with this unclean spittle on his face on a feast day, already ostracized and isolated from the entire community, now looking like a total doofus in front of all these people. But he has the faith enough to listen because maybe he's so hopeless. He's so much on the, at the end of his rope. He has nothing left like the hemorrhaging woman reaching out after 12 years of bleeding and all these doctors not able, able to help her just if I just touch the hem of his garment, just if I can just get to that pool. And he's able to see. And he's able to see. I love just the, the bizarre imagery of that scenario and how it must have played out in real life. And then we have the questioning of the Pharisees, the question of the Sabbath. You were not allowed to knead or make anything like clay or bread on the Sabbath. It was considered excessive work. So that was something you would bring to the Pharisees. They were the legal kind of judges of that time. And they call forth witnesses, which is what they were supposed to do. And at the time that this is written, Christians are being persecuted. And so you notice it says the Jews, even though everyone in the story is Jewish. Because the Jews at the time of John are those who were persecuting early Christians. And they were expelling people from synagogues if they professed that Jesus was, was Lord. And so we get a sense for what was happening at the time of John's writing and how this is meant to be an encouragement to help people in the midst, again, of that darkness and that persecution to focus on the light of Christ, to focus on the fact that he is the living water and that we are, again, we're out in these makeshift structures in the desert where we feel abandoned, where we don't know where we're going or what God is doing, to be reminded that he is faithful to remember. That is everything that colors the beauty and the transformative invitation of this gospel passage this week. So I hope that answers some of the questions and um, things that stood out to you. But are there other questions or things that resonated with you from this passage? Chris. So when he says, um, um, 
like light in the day, like if like you know, if I'm I'm at work and like, I'm, it's gonna be night soon. Yes. What does it mean by that? Like. Um, so there's multiple ways you can interpret that. It could be that the day was physically ending, um, but interpreting that spiritually, meaning like the works that, that we're able to do before darkness comes, before the end of all things happens, is coming, you know, or the opportunity to be part of this mission to build the kingdom of God. Like Jesus's final moments are coming sooner and sooner and sooner. And so you can interpret it in multiple different ways. You know, what we would say in an eschatological way, meaning having to do with the end times or our destiny, and also just in a literal way that it's going to be dark soon. You can't do anything because it's dark, you know. There will eventually be a day where we can't. We can do nothing else. You know, in the context here, he says, we have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day, while we have the chance. We have to do the works of the one who sent us. We have to do the works of God because eventually it will be night, meaning it will all be over. And we're not going to wake up before Jesus, you know, be brought before Jesus all of a sudden and be like, oh, just one last chance real quick. Can I just go back and just do one more good deed or get to confession really fast? Like we can't leave it till the last moment. The scripture itself says, Jesus himself says, you will not, uh, you will not go until you have paid the last penny when he speaks of judgment. And so we will have to make an account for all of it. And part of that is the opportunity to sow good works, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to give testimony and witness. Even though this man was brought before the Pharisees who were not a very friendly body of people, they were a group of people who had Jesus crucified and were persecuting all of the early apostles and Christians. And he has to honestly proclaim what happened, knowing that he is risking his own life in the process. And yet he does. And so the same invitation is for us. Like we, have an, we have a chance every day, an opportunity right now, today, to do the works of God and not to put them off to tomorrow. Yes? Man, when he says, um, but since you claim you can see, that's his favorite I mean, basically saying, I'm the, I'm the truth, I'm the, I'm the way, and I know you haven't recognize me yes basically you think you know what's going on in mm -hmm. your life and you in, in this world yes but you you don't know you cannot see yeah even though i mean literally he, he actually it's not talking about his sight mm -hmm. about his soul yeah okay yeah they think they have enough knowledge to save them and they know the law really well they're very zealous and passionate about the law and they think that through the law because that's what's promised in the old testament through the law is the way of salvation but it's not through just rigid obedience to the laws for the law's sake. It's about what do the laws do? They set you free and set you apart from the people around you to show that you are consecrated to the Lord so that you will live into this freedom and this new life that God offers you. It's not just so that you will be this rigid kind of rule-based faithful person. That's not what faith is. I heard this analogy today that, um, you know, if you've ever, if you've ever, um, tried to lose weight, you know, there's this like tendency to like, you know, read about all the fad diets and read about nutrition and get as much information as possible, or you could just like eat less and then it would actually happen, you know? And it was like the same thing can happen theologically, right? We can just learn all the rules and read the Bible and get a whole lot of information and feel like we're really close to God, or we could just start being a disciple. And both of those things are good. You, it helps to have both, but sometimes we think that the knowledge is enough. And so it's the difference in, like, we have words in many languages, as I pointed out before, uh, two different words to know. 
you know, um, what is it in Spanish? Saber and conocer, is that right? Yeah, that, to know or to like to understand, to, to know in an intimate way, relationally or to know informationally. And knowing God informationally doesn't set us apart in any particular way. The devil and his demons know God informationally. They know he exists. They know what he's about. They know more about him than we do. It's the relational part and the willingness in that relationship to submit ourselves to God, to obey and to trust. That is the difference. And there are a lot of people in churches, in our congregations, a lot of times in our own lives, where we have to recognize that maybe this has so far just been about what I know. Just been about what I know. And maybe it hasn't yet sunk in, soaked into that place where it's changing my relationship with God to the point where I can actually trust in him, submit to him, obey, that it's changing my life. And it's not just the set of good things that I know and talk about and try to live by. That's the difference. And the Pharisees, they were guilty of the knowledge, but not the understanding. Emily. I'm curious why they said that parents never sin or didn't sin. Like, what is the understanding of sin in this context here? Yeah, so in the Old Testament, um, God actually says this when he's giving the Ten Commandments. In the first commandment, he says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Uh, God says, you shall not bow down before idols or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their ancestors' wickedness on the children of those who hate me down to the third and fourth generation. Okay, so there was this idea. This is how they articulated it. God is not vindictive. He doesn't actively punish us. But how the Jewish people articulated this was they understood and they saw those who turn away from God and separate themselves from him experience destruction. And that destruction doesn't only affect them. It's rooted in their family and generational genealogical sin and destruction. Just like when we perform evil acts or immoral acts in the world, it doesn't just affect us. It ripple effects. And we could do something so heinous, so sinful, so immoral that it continues to affect our family, our children, our children's children. And so that was a big understanding for the Jewish people. But they also had in Ezekiel chapter 18, this was now the Lord is speaking about and to just the people of Israel. Not just people who, not now the people who go away from God, but the people of Israel. And he says this in Ezekiel 18, verse 20. He says, only the one who sins shall die. The son shall not be charged with the guilt of his father, nor shall the father be charged with the guilt of his son. Justice belongs to the just and wickedness to the wicked. So in terms of personal responsibility for sin, what we will be judged for are the things, the choices that we make or the things that we fail to do that we should have done in good faith and in good works. However, it doesn't negate the fact that the sins of those around us, especially those who are most connected to us, most intimately involved in our lives, our family, our spouses, our close friends, the sins that they commit can affect us. They can bring destruction into our lives or create these negative attachments or ways, footholds in which the evil one and demons can operate within our lives, within our families, within our relationships, whether it's unbeknownst to us. And so there are things like in deliverance ministry and priests who are exorcists talk about generational curses, generational sin, things that need to be broken because, you know, someone finds out in doing a genealogy, they've had all of these destructive things happen in their life. And it turns out someone five generations ago was a voodoo priestess and had all of these curses and things surrounding them. And so people come in and they do deliverance and, you know, break these different chains and attachments. And all of a sudden this person experiences radical freedom. And so that there is a truth to this. 
that is borne out just in our everyday experience, how we affect one another, and it's seen by those who are involved in that type of ministry, uh, in deliverance and exorcist ministry. So hope that answers your question. Yes? What exactly was the political and economic position of the Pharisees? So the Pharisees were, uh, in, in essence, like scri scribal lawyers and judges. They formed part of the body that was the Sanhedrin. Not all Pharisees were on the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin was this kind of judicial council of 70 elders, most of whom were Pharisees. And so Pharisees were very law-oriented. Um, they weren't usually the priests in the temple. They were the people who exacted judgment or like um, judicious decisions on areas like this. Did someone violate the Sabbath? All those 613 laws in the Old Testament, when it says, if someone does this, go to the elders of the city and tell them all that has happened and they will pronounce a judgment. The Pharisees were the people who did that in, in Jesus's time. Other questions, thoughts, things that stood out to you? Chris? like a blueprint on how to heal someone who's blind? For us? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that you asked that. <laughs> what a cool question to ask. Um, is this a blueprint for how we can go heal someone who is blind? The fact that you would ask that question just shows like how it wouldn't occur to most of us to even ask that question, right? But in this same gospel, in the gospel of John, Jesus himself says, you will go and do the things that I have done and even greater works than these. So if Jesus is here in the Gospels healing a man who was born blind, he is telling the disciples and the disciples that come after them, if you have faith in me and if you are really my disciple and you follow me and you exercise that faith, you will be able to do these things. Not for your glory, but for God's glory. And there are people who have that gift. There are people who have the charism of healing. And they'll teach you, if you've ever discerned your charisms, your gifts of the Holy Spirit, that's another way of saying that, the gifts, the unique gifts God has given you, every single gift or charism is healing and evangelizing, every single one of them. But there are people who have a particular supernatural gift of healing that not every time, but in times where God calls them to in the moment, if they pray for someone's healing, God will heal that person through them. They have the unique gifted ability to be able to do that, to call down the presence of the Holy Spirit in such a way that they will be healed. And that still happens to this day. This isn't something in Pentecostal churches or that's faked in televangelist shows or that's, you know, for magic stages. This happens in Catholic churches and in charismatic and non-charismatic communities all over the world today. And so is this a, uh, a, a blueprint for how to heal someone? Now that's a different question because I, I don't know if someone came up to me and was like, I've been born blind, will you pray for my healing? I don't know if the first thing that I would do would be like, okay, what am I gonna spit on to make some clay? Um, you know, this, this one makes me uncomfortable, not as much, uh, un not as uncomfortable as the, the miracle, I think it's in Mark chapter eight, where Jesus, someone is healed, they're deaf, they're deaf mute, and he takes him away alone, spits on his fingers and puts his fingers in the man's ears. Double wet willy. That's how he heals this man in Mark. That's in the Bible. Jesus double wet willy heals a dude. So I don't know if it's a blueprint in that sense, um, but I think what I think matters about this and what's really prevalent in the Gospel of John is the tactile, what we would call in sacramental theology, the matter and the form. You know, so in every sacrament, you have something tangible, a visible sign, bread, wine, oil, water, a candle, rings. You have these tangible things. And in order for the sacrament to be valid, 
the matter and the form, meaning the actual physical substance and the words, the specific words or structure that are spoken, need to both be correct and present in order for a valid sacrament to take place. And almost what you see here, you could track it through the Gospel of John, the, the turning water into wine at the wedding of Canaan. You know, the, uh, the talking about living water with a woman at the well. The way Jesus heals, the way that he heals the man who's sick for 38 years uh, by the pool in Jerusalem in John chapter 5. And he goes into the, cleansed, the, the cleansing waters, clay and water here. All of these different matter forms, sacramentals. And so I think if you are to take this as a blueprint, is to ensure when you are praying for someone or when you're asking for these miraculous things to happen, to not ask for them in some lofty, out there, distant, spiritual way, but to recognize like God works miracles in the here and now in real earthly, fleshy ways, like in our bodies, in our physical embodied selves, God wants to work miracles and he does work miracles. And so even if it's just something as simple as like placing a hand on someone, and praying for them in that moment, and not just saying, oh, I'll pray for you when I pray my rosary later, but no, I'm going to lay hands and pray on you now, and pray in faith that God will heal you, because every time I pray for someone's healing, I tell them, God will heal you. It's just a matter of time. I stole that from the chosen. Uh, when Jesus is talking to little James, God will heal you. It's just a matter of time, and it's true. Either in heaven or in this life, he will heal you. It's just a matter of time, and so with that faith, simply laying hands on someone, or even blessing them with holy water. If you don't have holy water, making the sign of the cross over them, using the form of the words of scripture. Um, I do this with my kids every night, the Aaronic uh, priestly blessing from the book of Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with kindness and grant you his peace. You know, using scriptural words, those beautiful formulaic things that were offered in scripture can be a very good blueprint to be able to pray for healing and deliverance and really powerful things to happen in other people's lives. Yeah, question. Like, kind of made a joke about this, but like, you mentioned how like they're somehow tangible and like ones, but like would the spit of Jesus be considered the living water that he talks about? <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's what he meant um, because the living water he speaks of is figurative. Remember, she misunderstands. She's like, where is this living? Because living can be translated as bubbling or running water. So she thinks, like, it's a river. Where's a river? I don't want to keep coming to the well. But he's talking about the water that I have to give you will ensure that you never thirst again. And that's not uh, characteristic of natural water. So he's speaking of something supernatural or, or spiritual in that sense. Um, but, you know, at the very least, anything that comes from Jesus is divine and holy and perfect. And so, you know... Um, I don't know what you would call it, not a first-class relic, because he's not just a saint, a zero-class relic. It's like the thing, you know? So, yeah. Gage. Can you speak to um, the very end of verse 40? We already had the question about whether the blindness is literal or not, but mm -hmm. if you were born blind, you would have no, no sin, but now you are saying we see, so your sin remains. Is that perhaps because they're, they're not willing to admit? Mm -hmm. Or I don't know if you could... If you could yeah, the thing that I'm reminded of is what is characterized in the church as the only unforgivable sin, and that's the sin of impenitence. Another way of saying it is the only sin that God cannot forgive is the one you do not ask forgiveness for. And in the stubbornness of the Pharisees' legalistic tendencies and focus, they're not willing to admit 
that they might be wrong or there might be more to this man or he might be the one who's promised because that would that would then involve them coming off of their high horses of being in the positions of power and authority and subjugating themselves to this man who looks like a traveling poor lunatic uh, in their mind. And so I think that's why uh, Thomas Aquinas and many other saints have noted that pride is the chief of all sins. That if we're unwilling to submit ourselves and see spiritually God for who he really is and what he's desiring to do, then we remain in our sin. Pride roots us in that separation from God. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. You don't know best, God. We know best. We'll make the decision. And that's what caused the separation in the first place. So I think that's what it reminds me of, at least, if that helps. Other uh, questions, thoughts? One final person, maybe? Michelle, it's you. So um, speaking of the chosen, yes. um, the sacred binge. Yes. Um, so the, the line in this um, this reading, one thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. And it reminds me of when Nicodemus approached Mary. Yes. And he's questioning her. What happened to you? Who, you know? Mm-hmm. And she said, all I know is I was one way and now I'm different. And he is what... And what happened in the middle was him. Yeah, yeah, what happened in the middle was him. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of that that simple faith. It's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, it just happened. Yeah. And and I believe. Yeah. And the simplicity, too, of what they offer, right? There's no uh, implication that the woman at the well or the man born blind then go off and give these massive theological treatises about, you know, how the old covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. They simply witness with their testimony. And that's a great, if you've never given your testimony or formulated it before, that's a great structure. I was one way, now I'm this way. What happened in the middle was him. Tell that story to someone and be able to tell it in 30 seconds on an elevator, in a few minutes in a conversation, or work it out long form if you ever had the chance to share it with a group or for a group or for a ministry or something like that for 30 minutes. And have all of those forms of your testimony written out or outlined so that if someone asks you, oh, you're Catholic, why are you Catholic? Instead of thinking about all the theological reasons that I want to convince this person to be Catholic, just say, well, I'll tell you why I'm Catholic, because I was one way, and now I'm completely different, and what happened in the middle was him. Let me tell you that story. There's a beautiful song that Matt Maher wrote as a result of that, um, which is called The In-Between, I think is what it's called, uh, that came out, and it was in the premiere of the season three of The Chosen, if you saw it in theaters, and it's, it takes that line and turns it into a song, basically, uh, and it's beautiful. I love that song. So... I think that's what it's called, it's the in-between. But that is a great model for us because these miraculous things happen. These miraculous things are, are things God is inviting to do in our lives and to happen every single day if we but notice, if we but have the faith that they can happen. And when they do, they are not just for us. They are so that the works of the one who sent me will be made visible. So that the works of God might be made visible through us. Is that happening in our lives? Have we articulated that to others? Do we know our story and how it fits into the story? Because you play a role here. You were born at this moment in salvation history for a purpose and a reason. And if you are still living, breathing in this room, on this earth, it's because God is not finished with you. And your story is a story that needs to be told because it has a, a moment where it intersects with someone else's story. And they need to hear it so that they will be able to experience this transformation they'll be able to realize that I was born blind, but now I'm being invited to see and see in a way that I've never seen before. Who are those people in your life? Who are the blind around you? And how do we need to perpetually admit that we are still blind in many ways? 
We are still wandering through the desert as we are in the season of Lent, brothers and sisters. And so we need to keep seeking the Lord. There never suddenly becomes a shift where like, I'm seeking the Lord and then we reach this like peak level of holiness and we level up and then it's just about evangelizing. No, it's the whole journey of our life is about being the man born blind, being transformed so that others will know that they are the men and women born blind and they will start that journey too. And it cycles and it cycles and it cycles. You have a valuable part to play. You individually. God loves you and is working in you in a unique and unrepeatable way that no one else can do. But the only person who can write that story is you. The only person who can share it is you. So that, I think, is our invitation this week, brothers and sisters, to recognize how we have been able to see how God has transformed us and how we are being called to transform others. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this evening and this community. We pray that you allow it to continue to grow, that you would place on our hearts the names of one or two people who we'd like to invite to this community, of one or two people who we think might be struggling with spiritual blindness in their life, and we want to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them, not in lofty theological terms or in biblical explanations, but simply in the story of what you have done in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would help make that known to us in a special way this coming week. Remind us that you are still at work in our lives, even though you may seem invisible or unseen or in the background, that you are still intimately involved and aware of everything going on, and that you love us so much that you will never leave our side. The healing we desire and the healing you seek to bring into the world through us will happen. It is only a matter of time. So help us to have faith that is bold, that is willing to share the good news, share our testimony, and bring healing, joy, and the good news, the transformation you offer from darkness to light, from death to life to others that need to hear it this week. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before you...